I thank God for all who have led us so beautifully in worship today. We are continuing a sermon series called Harbingers of the Cross. We're looking at key moments toward the end of Jesus' earthly life that point toward his death. Today I want to draw your attention to John 12. I'll read verses 20 through 36 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Magnetic Grace. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. While you have the light, Believe in the light so that you may become children of light. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In 2005, my wife Dana and I traveled to Romania with a group from Wake Forest University Divinity School. When we got there, the invitation came for someone in our group to deliver the Sunday sermon at Providence Baptist Church in the city of Bucharest. 
So I gladly volunteered. As I sat at the front of the sanctuary, looking out at the crowd of believers whose language I did not speak, whose culture I was unfamiliar with, whose circumstances I was not privy to, I became a bit uneasy, wondering if my sermon would speak to their needs. But when I stood to deliver the sermon and walked up to the pulpit, I noticed a brief verse from John's Gospel printed right there on the pulpit. It said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It occurred to me that the way to speak to people's needs, any people's needs, is to present Christ. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. This phrase derives from John 12, 21, when a group of Greeks show up asking to meet Christ. It seems that they want to speak with him, to visit with him, and possibly to believe in him. The significance of this moment in John's gospel is that Gentiles are now coming to Christ. Persons outside of Israel, persons external to God's chosen people, persons who are not Jewish, are approaching Christ with a sincere desire to know him. The arrival of these Gentiles is a foretoken of the cross. For when Jesus learns of their request, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Ironically, he's talking about his impending death. In John's Gospel, the glory of Christ is his shame. The elevation of Christ is his humiliation. The magnification of Christ is his execution. The power of Christ is his weakness. The majesty of Christ is his disgrace. The highest calling of Christ is his lowliest moment. For the ascendancy of Christ is when he is lifted up high on a cross to suffer and to die. His death is neither unexpected nor fruitless. Christ likens his demise to a solitary seed going into the ground. It's not so much the end of the seed as the beginning of new life. After all, in a single seed lies the possibility for a whole field of sunflowers. In a single seed lies the promise for acres of pumpkins. In a single seed lies the potential for orchards of apples. Likewise, the death of Christ will bring forth the fruit of his countless followers, the harvest of untold disciples the world over. While Christ's death germinates a vast harvest of spiritual fruit, it also renders divine judgment. Now is the judgment of this world, he declares. 
The reason is that the cross throws light on the world's wickedness. For the world to reject Christ is for the world to reject God who sent him. For the world to oppose Christ is for the world to oppose God who sent him. For the world to crucify Christ is for the world to spurn God who sent him. The death of Christ shows quite clearly creatures rebelling against their creator in sinful defiance, moral turpitude, and spiritual corruption. The cross is earth's renunciation of heaven. The cross is the apogee of human wickedness in spite of God's goodness. The God of love came down to earth in human form only to be disdained, tortured, and executed. And yet, and yet the same cross that represents the apex of human sinfulness simultaneously represents the climax of divine grace. The same cross that discloses human depravity simultaneously discloses divine mercy. The same cross that exposes the evil works of humanity simultaneously exposes the extravagant love of God. Rejected, scorned, and disrespected to the nth degree. Christ loves us on the same cross where we killed him. And Christ saves us on the same cross where we executed him. Christ reconciles us on the same cross where we alienated him. Christ redeems us on the same cross where we spurned him. The cross is at once the revelation of human corruption and the revelation of divine grace. As a result, we can't see humanity's downfall without also seeing God right there to pick us up again. We can't observe humanity's abysmal failure without also seeing God right there to love us, to forgive us, and to restore us. The same radiant light that illuminates human sin in all of its horrors simultaneously shines the warmth of God's great love upon all humankind. Listen to Jesus as we summit the mountaintop of this marvelous passage. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We relegate him to a cross, yet he draws us in from that same despised position. We seek to rid ourselves of him on the cross, yet he seeks fellowship with us from that same ignominious perch. We try everything we know to push Christ away, yet he pulls us toward himself. The Greek term translated draw here means to tug. The connotation is attracting, wooing, 
or pulling. The same word is used later in John 21 to describe the disciples hauling in a net full of fish. So it evokes the image of reaching out for people and pulling them in. In another piece of ancient literature, the same Greek term is used to reference a magnet. Jesus is describing the magnetic grace of God that draws us toward him with a gentle yet decisive pull. This magnetic grace is how God brings us into fellowship with Christ. It's reminiscent of Jeremiah 31.3. I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. It's reminiscent of Hosea 11.4. I have drawn you with gentle cords, with bands of love. God does not compel us against our will. God draws us with gentle kindness. God does not push us with brute strength. God pulls us with tender grace. God does not coerce us, but God is not indifferent either. God's drawing of us falls somewhere between coercion and neutrality. God's drawing of us falls somewhere between compulsion and inactivity. God's drawing of us involves tender tugging, lovingly pulling our hearts. Theologians sometimes call this preceding grace because it precedes our belief in Christ. Theologians sometimes call this enabling Grace, because it enables our faith in Christ and our fellowship with Christ. We are drawn by divine grace. We are not forced, yet we are not forsaken either. We are not coerced, yet we are not abandoned either. Christ dies on the cross to save us from sin and to draw us in. Now, in some religious traditions, humans try to draw the gods near. But in Christianity, God draws humans near. Humanity is not wooing God. God is wooing humanity. It's not that we initiate and God responds, but that God initiates and we respond. Divine grace is always primary. Human faith always secondary. Divine grace is always first. Human faith always responsive. We find fellowship with Christ through faith only because he first dies on the cross and draws us toward himself. Jean-Marie Setbon grew up in France in the 1970s. His parents were not Christians, and he never went to church as a kid. But at the age of eight, 
while on summer vacation, he noticed a cross affixed to his bedroom wall. Inexplicably, he writes, I felt drawn to Christ. Although Setbon did not know much about Christ, he had seen crosses before on church buildings and bell towers. He writes, I became completely obsessed with this cross which drew me like a magnet. Sometimes he would sit in his bedroom contemplating the cross. I had the strong impression of being in contact with a person, he says. It was a divine presence, a very powerful presence who pardoned, reconciled, gave peace, and brought me a deep interior sense of well-being. Setbon eventually became a devout Christian. He recalls, the attraction was stronger than I was. Christ draws people to himself. He always has. When he was first born, shepherds and wise men were drawn to him. When he called his first disciples, saying, follow me, Peter and Andrew were drawn to him. When he taught by the lakeside in Galilee, listeners from all over the region were drawn to him. When he healed people left and right, the sick and the lame were drawn to him. When he multiplied the loaves and the fishes, thousands upon thousands were drawn to him. Christ continues to draw people today. Some are drawn by his inclusive embrace of outcasts. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners, he says. Some are drawn by his kindness toward children. Let the little children come to me, he says. Some are drawn by his radical social ethics. Just as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me, he says. Some are drawn by his offer of unburdened rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says. Some are drawn by his extension of abundant forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven, he says. But nowhere does Christ draw people more powerfully than when he is lifted up on the cross. Notice the universal scope of the grace he unleashes, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. No demographic is omitted. No group is discounted. No individual is excluded. <laughs> the magnetism of grace is as widespread as the magnetism of gravity. The cross is quite literally all-encompassing. As 2 Corinthians 5 says, Christ died for all. As 1 Timothy 2 says, Christ died as a ransom for 
all. As Hebrews 2 says, Christ tasted death for all. While the offer of grace is universal, the reception is not. While the intent of grace is universal, the result is not. For while God's grace is the precondition that makes salvation possible, human faith is the necessary response that makes salvation effective. Christ draws us all, but not so forcefully that we can't resist. Which is why Bible scholar Rudolf Schnackenberg wrote, There is no limit to Jesus' saving power except the resistance of unbelief. The grace of God draws us to Christ like a campfire in the dark winter woods. We are hikers lost at midnight in a cold mountain forest, and as we behold the sparkling orange glow of the flames ahead of us, we are drawn to them. We are attracted to them. We are mesmerized and magnetized by them. Something primitive in us recognizes that it's exactly what we need. Something deep within us knows that it promises salvation. As we move in the direction of the campfire, the steps are ours, but they are only possible because of the inviting illumination before us. When we arrive at the light of God's warm grace, it's only because the divine fire has wooed us, captivated us, and pulled us in its direction. We are saved by the fire of divine grace drawing us in, but we are not saved without our own walk of faith cooperates with the revelation we have received. Walk while you have the light, he says. We are saved by God's grace, but not without our own response to divine love, not without our own decision to exercise faith, not without our own step of trusting the gracious God disclosed to us in the light of Christ on the cross. The fourth century Christian leader, Athanasius, observed, it is only on the cross that a man dies with his hands spread out. Indeed, the crucified Christ reaches out both of his hands in a gesture of grace toward all. With one hand, he draws the Jewish people, and with the other hand, he draws Gentiles. With one hand, he draws the old, and with the other hand, he draws the young. With one hand, he draws the hoi polloi, and with the other hand, he draws the hoity-toity. With one hand, he draws the urbanites, and with the other hand, he draws country folk. With one hand, he draws people with dark skin. And with the other hand, he draws people with light skin. With one hand, he draws people on the left. 
And with the other hand, he draws people on the right. With one hand, he draws the religious. And with the other hand, he draws the irreligious. With one hand, he draws prisoners. And with the other hand, he draws professors. With one hand, he draws introverts. With the other hand, he draws extroverts. With one hand, he draws the up and coming. And with the other hand, he draws the down and out. With one hand, he draws you. And with another hand, he draws me. The crucified Savior draws all people to himself. He draws us like a campfire burning in the dark winter woods. He draws us to faith and to salvation. He draws us to abundant life on earth and eternal life in heaven. He draws us into sweet, warm fellowship with Him. We might even feel a loving tug on our heart right now. We might even feel a tender pull of grace on our soul right now. We might even feel the magnetic grace of Christ drawing us ever closer to the God who absolutely adores us. How then, friends, will we respond? Amen. <laughs>